Wow, that was such an inspiring testimony from our sister Lori Comini and God bless her and what God has been doing in her life and in her family and in so many other families with us here at church during this COVID season. Hey, we are in a series called Esther Made for This Moment, and we have been going slowly through the book of Esther. In fact, the last four messages, we've only gone one chapter at a time. Today, we're going to do four chapters in one message. So if you hear me speaking fast, it's partly for that reason, but we have a lot to cover because today is not just the crisis of the Jews in in danger of being annihilated. Today, we're going to see the turnaround and victory, and we're going to see God's providence behind the scenes. You know, we are in Thanksgiving week, and I was reminded that in the midst of the Civil War, which was an even more difficult time for America, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation. And it was in November, it was the last Thursday of November. He says, now I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do hereby appoint and set apart the last Thursday in November next as a day which I desire to be observed by all my fellow citizens, wherever they may then be, as a day of thanksgiving and praise to Almighty God, the beneficent creator and ruler of the universe. Isn't that an amazing proclamation and very true that we acknowledge during the day of thanksgiving the providence, the care, and that God is our creator and that he governs the rulers. He lifts up one uh, individual into authority and power and he brings down another. And he is the one that takes care of us. So remember, friends, it's not just about eating turkey and watching football on Thanksgiving, although I enjoy that as much as anybody. It is about stopping and giving thanks to God. I hope around your table, however many people you're able to gather with this year, that you stop and give thanks to God and say what you are thankful to him for in this year, 2020. Well, let's get into uh, Esther right now. I want to ask you a question as we dive into the book of Esther to see how God was in this. You know, have you ever had that moment in your life where you experienced something awesome, something amazing, unusual, unexpected, which may have looked on the uh, surface that it was just pure coincidence, but afterwards you sensed that God was in it? I heard an old adage that says coincidence is just God remaining anonymous, right? How you knew that God was in something behind the scenes. Um, I, I was reminded in Massachusetts in that first Thanksgiving in the year 1621 uh, to see God's providence at work. You know, the pilgrims came over seeking religious freedom to start a new colony. They had originally tried to get to the Hudson River area where New York City is right now. That was their original direction, but they were blown off course. They ended up off the coast of Massachusetts. They found a quieter place to land. It was in Plymouth. They developed the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact on the ship there, the, the, the Mayflower, and then they landed ashore and they began their new life. And it was a difficult first few months. That first winter, almost half of their party had died. 
and say they reach the spring and they understand that if they didn't start growing some uh, corn or some vegetables, if they didn't figure out how to eke out a living, if they didn't figure out how to get along with their new neighbors who would normally be very hostile to them, the Indians, that the pilgrims were not going to make it. Now, I thought it was very interesting. In April of 1621, the captain of the ship was sailing back to England, and he asked the pilgrims, the separatists, if they, if anybody wanted to just say, you know what, we tried, it failed, let's just pack up and go back to England. Not one of those remaining separatists, even though half of them had died, not one said, I'm getting back on the ship and going home. They all were, were dedicated, they felt called by God to this endeavor of making a new life in a new land, and, and eventually... Uh, we are the recipients, we are the, we are the blessed ones of their commitment and their faith. And if you see this moment of coincidence or moment of God's providence, it was on March 16 in 1621 when an Indian, a big tall Indian named Sama said, he walks into their village. They're scared to death. They don't know what he's really wanting. But out of his mouth comes English words. And he says, welcome Englishmen. And, he, and then he says, do you have any beer? <laughs> so very interesting how alcohol and relations with the Indians started from an early time. But anyway, uh, Samoset introduced himself and he said that most of the Indian population around them had been wiped out in a plague. The last three years, 95% of the surrounding Indian population had died. And so the pilgrims just, quote, happened to land in a place where there were very few Indians around. They normally would have seen these English settlers as a threat and they would have attacked them, but they didn't. The sachem of the, of the Indians was named Massasoit. And he had somebody that he knew in his camp that had recently arrived only six months before. And he said, if the English ever come, I need to have this Indian around to be able to communicate uh, with the other side. That Indian's name was Tisquantum. Tisquantum had, had originally been a 12-year-old boy. He was captured by English marauders. He was taken over as a prisoner into England. He spent nine years in England. He learned the language. He tried to get passage back over to the United States with Captain John Smith, of all people, uh, from Virginia. Uh, but he was captured again by uh, other ship marauders. He was brought over to Spain. They landed in Malaga, Spain as, as prisoners and were going to be sold into slavery. But these Spanish monks bought Squanto or Tisquantum and his friends and they befriended them. They taught them the Christian faith. And eventually Tisquantum made his way a couple years later back to England and got passage over to America. But it devastated him when he arrived to America and saw that most of his people were wiped out. He ended up going over to Massasoit, the local chief who was still alive. They became friends and, and Tisquantum became the intermediary between the English settlers, the pilgrims, and the Indians. And Tisquantum did a number of big favors for him. He taught them how to catch eels and fish in the local creeks. He taught them how to plant corn using fish as fertilizer. Um, and he was, uh, as I said, he was the intermediary between the Indians and the pilgrims. And it was William Bradford as they were giving thanks on that first day. 
1621, when they had that thank first Thanksgiving feast, Governor William Bradford later wrote that Tisquantum was, quote, a special instrument sent of God for their good and, and beyond their expectation. So even in our Thanksgiving season, friends, we can see God's providence at work. Now, let's shift gears. We're not in 1621 anymore. We're going way back in time to about the year 473 BC in the capital city of Susa of the Persian Empire. It's now in the western area of Iran. And the king of all kings in that time was Xerxes. And you remember the story that he had made Esther his queen. And about five years have gone by now since Esther's been made queen. Uh, Haman has come along. He's risen up in power and authority. He was an evil man. He was uh, a descendant of the Amalekites, ancient enemies of the Jews. And it was Haman who saw that Mordecai, who was a Jewish man in the city gate, that everyone bowed down to Haman in, in respect and honor and reverence, except for Mordecai. Mordecai basically said, I bow down to God, but I don't bow down to any man. And that infuriated Haman. And Haman found out that Mordecai was a Jew. And so Haman secretly got the king to sign an edict that, that about nine months later would annihilate the Jewish people. Mordecai finds out about it. He starts weeping and wailing and lamenting. Mordecai gets a word to Esther that, that she needs to do something about it. She says, hey, I can't go to the king. Nobody can go to the king. If you go to the king uninvited, you could be killed for that. And, and that's where Mordecai says those famous words. Esther, do you realize that God could have raised you up as queen of Persia for such a time as this. Esther, you could be made for this moment to help save your people. And so Esther, though she hesitated originally, she came back and she said, hey, have everybody fast. Have all the Jews in the city fast. My handmaidens and I, we're gonna fast. We're gonna pray. We're gonna ask God to intervene uh, on our behalf. And after three days, I'm gonna go to the king. And she says these famous words, which embody courage, friends. She says these words, and if I must die, I must die. Wow. So you see Esther's courage. She stood in solidarity with the oppressed. She determined to speak up and not be silent. She accepted the risk and whatever the result is. If she died, then she died, but she was not going to try to just save herself. Does that not remind you of Jesus' call to us in discipleship? He says, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. And then Jesus says these words, whoever wants to save his own life will actually lose it. But whoever is willing to lose his life for my sake will find eternal life. Esther didn't even know Jesus, but she knew the principle. She was willing to risk her life to save her people. So now it's do or die for Esther. We reach chapter five on the third day. Esther put on her royal robes. She st stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. She'd been fasting and praying, been on her knees before God for three days, as had all the Jewish people crying out to God for a breakthrough. And she, as she stands in the inner court in front of the king's hall, she's saying, how is the king going to react? Is he going to lift that golden scepter and save my life? Or is he going to say, 
sorry, you, you broke all the rules and now you have to die. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, Xerxes, the king, he was pleased with her and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in her hand. So she found favor. Uh, her life was spared. <laughs> She's saying it's off to a very good start. And then the king asked her, said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, I'm thinking if I were Esther right there, she says, wow, he says he'll give me up to half the kingdom. Shouldn't be anything to say, I need to uh, rescind that law uh, so that my, the Jewish people could be spared. But Esther knew that it was going to take more time and more convincing uh, and that the Lord was going to have to work on Xerxes' heart before he was ready to hear her uh, petition on behalf of the Jews. So she says, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So Esther prayed, but she also prepared. If the king says yes uh, to my petition and request, I'm going to hold a banquet. I'm going to invite the king. I'm going to invite that evil Haman, and I'm going to make a request and and God, please help the king be in the right mood when I ask this question. So she's, she's all ready to have the banquet. Uh, they're, they're now at the banquet, and Esther kind of hesitates because when you read this, uh, the way I read into it, she had the chance right then and there to ask her petition, and yet she did not. She held off. And this is where you kind of see God's providence at work. The king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Esther replied, my petition and my request is this, if the king regards me with favor, and I think he had, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then, and then she, and then she says, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now, maybe you read it the similar way that I read it, that she was hesitating. And I asked the question, why? Why didn't Esther just ask her petition right then and there? It seemed like the king was ready to do what she was asking him to do. But somehow in her spirit, I think that Esther realized the timing wasn't quite right. Or maybe she was full of fear. Maybe uh, she had some kind of discernment that says, now is not the right time. We, I, I need to get one more chance. Maybe we'll go back and we'll fast and pray some more and then ask him tomorrow. So, so she asked the king to a second banquet the next day. And the king says, fine. I think the drama is now increasing. Because Haman, on the other hand, Haman gets invited to the first banquet. And that evil man, he thinks that he's received even more favor from the king and the queen. Be invited. He's the only one invited to a banquet with them. Man, he is riding high. And then he goes outside the city gate on the way home. He sees that Mordecai, the Jewish man again. And he sees that Mordecai would neither rose, rise up for him or show any fear in his presence. And again, Haman was filled with rage against Mordecai. He wanted that guy dead. And honestly, Haman said, I don't want to wait nine months until that edict comes to fulfillment and all the Jews can be wiped out and exterminated. I want that guy dead now. So Haman goes home and in his pride, he starts boasting to his wife and to his family members and to his friends about all the things that he has and the king has done for him. And his wife, Zeresh, 
you guys, you really want to marry a godly wife. You don't want to marry a woman like this. Because uh, um she, his, Haman's wife and his friends, they said to him, well, why don't you have a pole set up? Reach to a height of 50 cubits. Now that's 75 feet in the air. So everybody can see it from far around. And then ask the king in the morning. So Haman, you're riding high. You go to the king tomorrow morning. And first thing, you need to ask him for the death of that Mordecai the Jew. And then impale his body on that stake. What do you say you do it? And Haman's like, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to do it. So Haman, he probably has a great night's sleep. Well, meanwhile, back at the palace, the king is going to bed. This is between the first banquet and the second banquet. And the king is trying to go to sleep that night. Only the trouble is that he can't sleep. He can't seem to fall asleep. It says that night the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. If there's any cure for insomnia, it's like reading the records of the royal court. And because he was there and he probably knew what happened anyway. But they were brought in and read to him. And this is where God's providence is at work. Because it just so happened that in the records that they were reading, it was found recorded there years ago that Mordecai had exposed Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. They had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Uh, another providential happening, Mordecai just happened to be around the corner or in a place to be able to hear their assassination plot. Mordecai goes to Esther. Esther goes to the king and says, these two guys want to kill you. And the assassination plot is foiled. And so, so King Xerxes' life is saved. And King Xerxes then, he asks the question. He says, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Because this guy just, he saved my life. He did me a real solid. What, what have I done to reward him? Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And so when Haman entered, the king asked him, oh, so, so now that on King Xerxes' mind, he's like, I want to do something special for Mordecai. Uh, who's out there waiting to see me? Oh, it's Haman. And Haman, he's coming in in the morning. He says, I want that guy's, I want that guy Mordecai. I want his head on a platter. And before he can even make his request, the king asks him this question. He says, Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Oh, what a question that is. You know, Haman's probably thinking to himself, he says, well, who is there in the whole kingdom that the king would rather honor than me? Right? Esther, I, I think the book of Esther, the writer, is kind of poking some fun at the, at the just the pride and the, the arrogance of this evil man, Haman. I mean, he is full of, of a big word called hubris. Have you ever heard of that word, hubris? I always think about dead leaves in some, that's a, that's a different word. Um, hubris is actually someone who is full of pride or self-confidence. And Haman certainly fits the bill here. He says, well, uh, Haman, you thought he was talking about you. But uh, so Haman says, well, 
he's going to do this for me because nobody else in the kingdom would the king rather honor than me. So he says, well, king, I tell you what you do. You get one of the king's horses and you get a royal robe and you get a signet ring and you get maybe a gold crown or something and you put it on that man's head. And then you have one of the royal attendants, um, royal officers lead him around the whole city of Susa and say, this is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honor. And so the king Xerxes says, that is an awesome idea, Haman. That's why I have you as one of my advisors. So Haman, go out there and do that immediately for Mordecai the Jew. And Haman's face, I, I would love to have been there to see the reaction on his face uh, of saying, for who did you say, sir? Mordecai the Jew. Go out and honor Mordecai the Jew. And the Haman's like, no, I wanted that guy dead. And now the king wants to honor him. And so Haman had to do it. Probably gritted his teeth the whole way. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai, led him on a horseback through the city streets of Susa, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And uh, I don't know how long Haman did it for, but he probably had to pass through a good part of the city. And finally, Haman finishes doing this detestable um, uh, activity, the last thing he wanted to do. It was the opposite of Haman's wishes. And now Haman goes home and he's probably crying in his beer and, he, and he's telling his wife and his family, he says, I can't believe it, man. I go to the king and I'm getting ready to ask him for the death of Mordecai. And instead the king tells me to honor Mordecai and lead him around on a horse. And Haman's family even had, they had a little prescience involved. They probably sort of knew that the tables were starting to turn. And they said, this is not good, Haman. Your, your, your favor with the king might be starting to turn. And it said, then it said, and at that very moment, the king's officials arrived at Haman's door to escort him to the second banquet. Now you wonder why, he, why Esther hesitated and said, I'm going to invite you to a second banquet. Look how much has changed just in that one day. And so Haman is now, man, this day is not going well at all. And now I'm getting invited to a banquet. Maybe things will turn around. And so now we get to chapter seven. The king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, same question, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? And now Esther has the courage to give her petition. She said, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. Yeah, it's very interesting the way she words it. Instead of saying, you know, I'm actually Jewish, you know, surprise, I'm actually one of the Jews. No, she says, grant me my life. So what is most dear to the king is now in danger, and she words it very wisely. She says, please grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. And so Esther is now um, uh, pleading for her life and for the life of her people. And then she goes on and she, she gets even bolder because the king hasn't responded yet. And she says, for I and my people, we've been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. And if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, in other words, if they weren't just going to kill us, but they were going to make us slaves, I wouldn't think that was a big enough reason to come and bring it to your attention, King Xerxes. I would have kept quiet. 
no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And then King Xerxes is getting worked up. He's getting upset, and he, you can just tell the anger, because Xerxes was kind of prone to these angry outbursts. We already saw it, what happened with Queen Vashti years earlier. And so King Xerxes is getting angry, and he says, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther says, An adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And so now Haman, <laughs> he knows his day has really gone from bad to worse. And the king uh, said, wow, it's Haman. Wow, this is my most trusted advisor. This is the guy that I was counting on. This is my number two guy. And you're saying he's the vile adversary that's trying to kill my wife and wipe out her people. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do here, but it's not going to go well for Haman. But the king, he, he waited. He didn't give his judgment right away. He got up in a rage, left his wine, and he went out into the palace garden. So now the Xerxes is away. Haman's there, and he realizes that he's a dead man walking if he cannot get Esther on his side. So Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now, but there's not going to be any chance for kingdom for, for Haman to be saved. He was evil and vile, and he needed, uh, God realized that he needed to be judged and destroyed for trying to kill all the Jews. There was no chance for him. It says, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So bad timing again, Haman. You're over there in the same place Esther is. You're falling on her. You're begging her for your life. The king walks in, and what does it look like visually? It looks like he is trying to take sexual advantage of his own wife. And the king exclaims, the king exclaims, he says, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? And so his anger is just boiling over. And it's interesting, justice prevails because one of the eunuchs attending the king who had become friends with Esther and knew her character, look what he suggests. I, I just think the timing was so perfect for this. Harbona, one of the eunuchs said, a pole, there's a pole outside, O king, reaching to a height of 75 feet and it stands by Haman's house. Haman, that guy, he set it up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king because Harbona realized the king had read those chronicles the night before and he, and he got up in the morning and he was honoring Mordecai and the very man that you just were honoring today, Haman has set up a pole to try to put him on a, to put Mordecai on a spike. Can you believe he did that? And the king says, I'll tell you what, instead of Mordecai going on that spike, Haman, you're going on the spike. So he says, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. So there was courage by Esther. There was fasting and prayer. There was asking God to intervene on her half. And then she saw the salvation of at least herself. And she was out of danger for the moment. But the problem was, in the law of the Medes and Persians, if the king had issued a decree, that decree could not be rescinded. You cannot abolish a law that the king of Persia had made. And so they had to come up with a way. They had to come up with a way to pass another kind of law or edict in order to protect and save the Jewish people. So there's the other request now. Now Mordecai and Esther have made it known to the king that they're both Jewish. They're actually related to each other. And 
and the king Xerxes is now honoring Mordecai and he's letting Mordecai have influence into this decision. So Mordecai advises Esther and Esther says, if it pleases the king and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do and if he's pleased with me. By the way, if your son or daughter comes up to you as a parent and, and opens with that line, you better know it's going to be a big, huge request because <laughs> she is showing an amazing amount of respect. But she says, if it pleases you, king, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For again, how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my own family? And so Xerxes approves it. And it says that once the royal secretaries were summoned, they wrote out all of Mordecai's orders because here's the way they got around that law. Instead of saying that law is null and void, they couldn't do it that way. They, they wrote another law writing out to all the Jew, Jewish people in the land and throughout the empire saying, on this particular day, you have the right to arm and defend yourselves. And if anybody comes after you to try to harm you or kill you, you have the right to protect yourself and kill them if it's necessary. Right? So the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and the right to protect themselves. Now, this was such a turnaround victory. This was such an amazing thing that the Jewish people actually made a national holiday for it. And it's called the Feast of Purim. Purim, you remember? Purim is like taking the dice and, and throwing the dice and whatever comes out, casting the lot was the way it was described. That, in, that during that time of Purim, that was a holiday to remind the Jews that there was a time when an evil man almost got his way and almost got the king of the whole empire to destroy all the Jewish people. That would have ruined God's plans, by the way, because God's plan was to keep working through his chosen people, the Jews, until eventually an earthly descendant to be born in Bethlehem 500 years later by by the Virgin Mary would be born the Messiah Jesus. The Jewish people had to be alive throughout all those generations in order for Mary to be born, in order for Mary to give birth to the Christ child, which we're going to be celebrating next month. So you see God's, uh, God had a plan, and in order for God to fulfill his plan, he had to intervene even if it was behind the scenes to save Esther and the Jewish people. Do you see God at work in Esther? Do you see God's providence at work? It begins with Vashti. Vashti, remember, she was asked to appear before the drunken king and all his nobles. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to parade myself in front of all you drunken men lusting after me. So she refused to do it. It angered the king. He banished her from being queen. That opened the door for a beauty contest in which Esther was chosen to be part of it. And because of her beauty and her character, Esther won the heart and the favor of the king. And she was made queen for such a time as this. Mordecai, how he found favor with King Xerxes. Uh, God allowed him to be in the right place in the right time to overhear that assassination plot and to report it to the king. And then King Xerxes, 
Of course, another sign of God's providence, it just happened to be between that first banquet and the second banquet when Esther hesitated on making her petition that he couldn't sleep that night and he asked for the Royal Chronicles to be read to him and he, re and he hears about Mordecai saving the king's life and he wants to do something to reward Mordecai. You see God's plan at work. You see God at work in Esther. The Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire who were on the verge of being wiped out and Messiah's ancestors with them, they were not only spared, they were given the chance to see their own enemies of the Jews exposed and to be able to defeat them. Only God could bring about such a victory through his providence and through destiny. And of course, it caused the Jews to create a new holiday. This reminds me of a proverb Proverbs 16.1 from the message, it says this, Mortals make elaborate plans, but you know what? God has the last word. Haman made an elaborate plan to try to wipe out his enemies, not just Mordecai, but all the Jewish people, including Queen Esther. He may not even known that she was a Jew at the time, but he made his elaborate plans to to destroy all the Jews, and yet God has the last word. God is always at work. You know, God, God was at work behind the scenes in the history of Esther and her people protecting the Jews to allow Messiah to be born. That Messiah to be born, Jesus, he came and he told the Jewish people in Jerusalem when he was talking to them at the time in John's Gospel, chapter 5, he says to them, to the religious leaders, he says, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. So friends, we know that God never takes a break. Even on the Sabbath, God is still working. He says God, and in fact, Jesus proved it because Jesus did miraculous healing many times on the Sabbath, showing that God was resting from his labors and he gave the Sabbath as a benefit to man, but God was still going to be actively involved working for the good of his people. God is working behind the scenes even now, friends, to help his people and to promote righteous behavior. Just because we don't see a a blatant public miracle does not mean that God is not at work. God is at work in your life, friends. God is at work to provide for you. God is at work to protect you. Uh, it reminds me of that song back in the 80s by Amy Grant, where she was singing about angels watching over me. She says, um, how who knows how many times my life was threatened just today. Reckless car ran out of gas before it came my way. Uh, threatens dangers all around me, accidents unknown, for I'll never see with human eyes the hands that lead me home. God is at work in your life today, friends. Jesus says that. God was always at work. God was at work in Christ to bring you to a point where you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and having put your faith in Jesus, you now have eternal life. God was at work pouring out his grace in your life. Look what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, for it is by grace. You get something you can't earn. You get, you get forgiveness and eternal life for God, even though you're a sinner and the wages of sin is death. God's going to give you a gracious gift freely, unearned. But for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. 
You can't save yourselves, friends. I can't save myself. We can't do enough right things to make up for the wrong things that we've done. It doesn't work out like a scale, like good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. That's not how God is judging us. God says, in the day you sin, you will surely die. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God poured out his grace actively working through Jesus. When he gave his life for us on the cross, we could have forgiveness and eternal life. And I don't know where you are today in your walk with God. But friend, I want to tell you, you can have peace with God. You can know him personally. You can have eternal life. You can know that you are now in a right relationship with God. You can know the reason why you were born. This is eternal life that, that, that we may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You can know the living creator God of the universe personally through his son Jesus. That's what you've been searching for. That's that emptiness in your heart that's been searching for a relationship with your creator and with your redeemer. And if you're ready to do that, friends, then we need to just stop right now and have a conversation with God because that's what prayer is. So I invite you to, to bow your heads with me right now and let's pray. Lord, today, Father, we come into your presence through Jesus, your son. Lord, we believe that you sent him to be the provision for us, that he gave his life on the cross for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come into a relationship with you by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, that's what we do today. We invite you to come into our lives. We declare to you that we are going to be your followers. We ask you to be the forgiver of all our sins, to be our healer, to be the leader of our lives. Lord, we don't want to live a life independent or away from you anymore. We want to be part of that living relationship and learn what it means to follow you and to know you every single day, more and more in a deeper and deeper relationship. And then, Lord, how you're going to use our lives to be change agents in this world, to be servants of reconciliation, that you've saved us and blessed us so that we can be a blessing and help proclaim to others the good news message that you have brought into our lives. Because, Lord, this message is for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Lord, we give our hearts and our lives to you today. We ask you to guide us. We ask you to continue, continue to providentially supervise the events that are going on in our country right now. Lord, we are so divided. We ask for your love, your grace, your righteousness, your truth. We ask for justice to prevail. We ask that evil be put down and righteousness be exalted because, Lord, you said, uh, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So help our nation to find revival and spiritual awakening and to turn our hearts back toward you, our living God. Lord, we lift up these prayers to you now in grateful thanksgiving and praise. Amen.